Hello, welcome to Vet Club. Well, it's this is going to be what is this? Vet talk, vet discussions. What are we talking In about? Vet talk. Vet talk. I think that's what we call it. It's a vet talk. Um, and we are going to be talking about heat stroke today. Heat stroke. As we sit here by our fire because it's gotten kind of chilly With here in Virginia. On. With blankets on. Um, yeah. So it's been a little bit since we had a show. So we're back. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you that were paying attention to whether or not we were gone. Um, so we're talking about heat stroke for two reasons. One reason is that it was requested. Um, so we had a request a few weeks back uh, to talk about heat stroke. And the second reason is because I almost got heat stroke. Yeah. I al- almost. I didn't get heat stroke. But I probably had heat exhaustion. So if you've been listening to the show, you know that um, Topher and I recently went on a camping trip. That's like a total like, understatement for what it was. So we were backpacking through the Grand Canyon. So it was four days, three nights, carrying everything on our back, like primitive camping. And um, on the third day, midway through the third day, I got what I'm pretty, we think is probably heat exhaustion. That's what it seemed like to me. From it seems, seems like it. it was, it was hot. Um, and yeah, so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then I will share as we go through maybe some of this. And Topher can share his perspective as well. Um, but so mostly what we're going to talk about is heat stroke. And so already you may have noticed I've used a couple different terms um, related to problems with overheating. Um, and so in veterinary medicine, we usually talk about heat stroke, um, but there are different degrees of severity of overheating. And m- for most of those descriptions, the earliest uh, problem gets re- referred to as like heat stress, where you're like, you're just kind of overheating. And if you catch that, now whether this is for a you know patient, a dog or a cat or whatever, or you yourself, you're just like, you're, you're overheating, your temperature is rising, and you maybe feel like a little crummy, um, a little weak. If it's a dog, it's probably panting, might be slowing down a little bit, might just... You Does know. your temperature rise first and then you feel bad, or do you start to feel bad as like your, your body trying to stop you from your temperature rising? No, your temperature is going to rise. It, like it's okay for your temperature to rise a little bit. Like if, if you're working out outside and in hot weather, your temperature is going to increase. Like when you feel hot, it's because your temperature's increased. Um, yeah, it, we always worried about that. Um, so I've been, I do like a pretty physical job and it's all the COVID stuff. And there have mm-hmm. been when we go out of town, sometimes they want to check your temperature at different buildings. Oh, and it sometimes worries like, oh man, we were, we were just, just working at really hard. A different building. 10 yeah. minutes ago yeah uh is our temperature gonna be too high when we go and it's like no i don't have a fever i've just been moving stuff for the yeah. last three hours that's interesting i mean if you most it of never those was places, i was gonna say most of those places your temperature um like typical normal temperature for a person is 98 and a half degrees 98.6 degrees some people run a little bit lower maybe in the high 97s or something like that and so a lot of those things like if your temperature is above 100 is where they say okay this is this is we're you know we're worried about this that doesn't necessarily mean it's truly a fever but if you are if your temperature is normally like for you personally your normal set point is 98.3 degrees that's like your personal normal and yours is at 99.3 degrees so 1 degree fahrenheit 
elevated from normal, you're going to feel pretty warm. And so you're going to be sweating and you're going to, but, and you're probably going to be flushed and you're going to know, um, you'll cool down pretty quickly. Once you get into either a cooler environment, you stop exerting yourself or, you know, those kinds of things. So your body's pretty darn good. Um, under normal circumstances. And we'll talk about the circumstances where that might not be able to happen. And so I would expect your body to cool off fairly quickly. Such as when you're in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> yeah, that's probably one of the times. Um, but um, but there's a number, there are individual factors, like personal factors, and there are also environmental factors that can um, lead to it. So at any given moment, what your actual measured body temperature is, is just a balance between how much heat you are producing and how much heat you are losing. And if you are, if you've got that balance right, um, and your, your temperature will stay pretty constant. Um, and you, if your temperature is where it should be and it's not fluctuating, you're going to feel comfortable. If, however, heat production is exceeding heat loss, you will start to, your temperature will rise and you will start to, under normal circumstances, feel hot. Um, and the feeling of hot is going to be accompanied by physiologic responses. Um, so I already mentioned some sweating. You don't have control over sweating. That is a physiologic response to your temperature rising. Um, you will become flushed. So you'll get vasodilation, your face or you know your chest and arms and things will become red because you're trying to offload heat that way. <clears throat> and so those are some of the physiologic responses, but then you'll also feel hot. And that feeling of hot is so that your conscious brain can be like, Hey, we can do something about this. So you, it will, it will, you know, trigger you to take some behavioral changes, like drink a glass of water, uh, get in the shade, turn on the air conditioning, like, you know, whatever you can do to help cool off. And then the opposite is true. If you have an excess of heat loss compared to heat production. So if your temperature starts to drop because the amount of heat you are producing is less than the amount you are losing, then you'll start to feel cold. Again, physiologic responses, you might shiver, you might have goosebumps, um, things like that, that you don't have control over. You'll probably get vasoconstriction in your periphery to you know reduce the amount of heat that's being lost. And then you're going to feel cold so that your conscious brain can be like, hey, put a sweater on, grab a blanket, turn the fireplace, you know, turn the heater on, those kinds of things. So then there's those behavioral accompaniments to try to help with that mismatch between heat production and heat loss. Um, but there's a limit to what you can do physiologically, which is why the behavioral changes um, can come into play. Um, but those same exact things happen in dogs and cats uh, for various reasons. So if the heat production is not matching the heat loss. And that can be because we have increased heat production or we have reduced heat loss or both. So for example, for me, when we were in the Grand Canyon, it was quite hot outside on that third day. Um, it was hot. Um, it wasn't humid. Um, so that in theory should help a little bit with, um, you know, evaporative losses through sweating. Um, but we were also exerting ourselves. We were You're carrying, also wearing um, a good amount of clothing so that you wouldn't get sunburned. I was, yeah, I was wearing a, a, a shirt to protect. It was supposed to be a, a good shirt for that kind of situation, but, but you also had a shirt underneath it. Yeah. That was so I could take the outer shirt yeah. off. Anyway. So yeah, I'm wearing layers of clothing, um, carrying, you know, 25, 30 pounds on my back in my backpack and then exerting ourselves by, you know, walking up a mountain or the inside mm -hmm. of a cliff or whatever you want to call it. And so at that moment, 
like we didn't ever measure my temperature, but the assumption is if I was developing, you know, if I was overheating, I mean, I like felt warm, but like it was warm outside. I, I'd felt warm pretty much the whole trip at that point. So I didn't necessarily notice that it had gotten to an excessive point. Um, but again, I was probably producing a fair bit of heat, absorbing a fair bit of heat from the environment and not able to effectively lose sufficient amounts of heat. So my temperature was probably increasing. And then I started to feel like, hmm, I don't, I don't feel so good. So I had to say like, hey, I, don't, I don't feel so hot right now. I didn't say I don't feel so hot. I actually, I felt plenty hot, but I don't feel so good. And so I had to pause for a little bit and, and it was weird because it, it wasn't, we hadn't been doing a lot of really high exertion for very long. We just started going up like maybe a few minutes before. So it wasn't a, a yeah. huge amount of exertion. So I think we got up it, all morning too, though. Yeah, we no, we'd been up and we'd gone up part of a mountain for most of that morning, but we had just gotten through a flat spot, but at a particularly hot part of the day, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we I, we didn't know for sure. So it was like, okay, are, is she hypoglycemic? Did you eat enough? And there was some thought that that was it. I don't think so, though. I didn't. I, didn't, I don't know. Um, but I at one point I felt nauseated. Well, actually, for a good chunk of it, I felt nauseated, um, and that's why I think it fit in for me into heat exhaustion rather than heat stress. Um, that was after it because I had to keep going. Turns out if you're in the middle of the Grand Canyon and you feel kind of crummy, um, you still have to keep going. So in normal circumstances, the recommendations for heat stress or heat exhaustion are to stop exerting yourself, get into some shade, drink some water, cool off. Um, and that was only temporarily an option. It's like, okay, we can rest for a minute, cool off, like dump some water on your shirt. Yeah, we don't even have that my, much water. Yeah, we didn't have that much water. Although every time we dumped some water, it was less we had to carry. So, you know, that's nice. Uh, but yeah, like we ha- we only have so, because we'd gotten to the point in the canyon where there was no more water for, uh, like no more reliable water. There was no mm-hmm. more, you know, streams or rivers or anything for us to get water from. So like this water has to get us out of the canyon. We have still a day and a half to go. Um, so yeah, um, we had to be conservative with, with the water. I mean, we, we were okay. It was not like it was, we were on our last sips, but we did have to think about that. And, um, yeah, so, but I, like I got nauseated and I was like, even taking a sip of water, I would feel nauseated. Now I never got to the point of heat stress or a heat, uh, stroke. So heat stroke by definition is when you have overheating and you also have neurologic impairment. Um, so when it gets to the point and that the stroke is probably where that term comes from, that the brain becomes involved. So I never um, had like confusion or, you know, certainly not, never ever any close to like loss of consciousness or anything like that. Um, and yeah, that was the thing they always told us in like sports. Uh-huh. It was uh, if someone starts to act kind of weird. Yeah, you stop you what they're doing right now. Stop everything. Yeah. So I never got to that point. And I mean, even though I was like feeling kind of tired and kind of nauseated, I tried to make sure to like say a few things now and again, just to make sure that people around me <laughs> knew like, okay, she's doing okay. You know, um, that's also, you know, so I was, I was consciously aware of those types of things too. So I was like, okay, say things, crack a, you know, a joke now and again about how I suck <laughs> because I'm having this issue. And, um, Everybody's having to wait for you. Everybody had to wait for me. I know. I ruined it for everyone. It was pretty, pretty terrible. Um, I did feel bad. Um, I did. I felt a little bit bad. Slowed, slowed people down, and um, and then kind of was like a punk that night because I did not feel like eating dinner that night, which. I, that wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to eat dinner that night. But the next morning, I really didn't feel like eating either until Topher made me. 
He was like feeding. He's like, eat this, eat this. I was like, stop giving me any more food. None of it sounds good. But I did. I ate. And um, and then I, I was I did much better the next day. I was feeling better. I still was cautious because I didn't want to get back to that point. But um, but not to talk too much about my situation, but it was just, it, it kind of gave me a different perspective. Um, it can creep up on you. That's the one thing I will say. Like it will definitely creep up on you, assuming that that's what I had. So in dog, it's, it's usually dogs. Cats can get it too, but it's almost always dogs. Um, so the kinds of things that will cause heat, any heat stress, heat exhaustion, heat stroke. And I do think we see all of these and people always just call it heat stroke. Any animal that comes in overheated, but in, they're not technically heat stroke if they don't have like dolmentation or have some sort of reduced, um, you know, they don't have to be unconscious. It doesn't have to be like full on coma, but they should have altered mentation. They should be at the very least pretty, pretty lethargic. And, um, and, and so to technically be heat stroke, the, if they have just GI upset, that can still be heat exhaustion because I had heat, uh, uh GI upset. Yeah. And all still over just the fit. ground. I did. I did have to vomit up some Gatorade. It was gross. I felt better afterwards though. Not going to lie. Um, not so much that I wanted to drink any more Gatorade, but I did feel better for a little bit. Um, so in heat stroke that we see or any of the kind of overheating scenarios, um, you know, clearly the most important thing is to reverse that process of, you know, to, to fix that mismatch between heat production and heat loss. And so we want to reduce heat production. So stop whatever activity you're doing. Um, so if that's a patient that's been seizuring and that is cre- generating heat from all the muscle activity, you've got to stop the seizure. Um, but then we also want to help enhance heat loss. And so, you know, the way we do that is, you know, just the way you would do it for yourself. Take a cold shower, um, drink some, they're usually, if they're truly heat stroke, they're not drinking any water because they're going to have GI signs. They don't want to drink any water anyway but we'll cool them off so we'll hose cool them down. down too fast is that a thing? um too fast is not the problem too much is the problem yeah. and so you, usually no, you th- say don't cool them down at all who who says that no not for a heat stroke but for like a lot of the things where it's like oh. a high temperature oh no you want to cool them down you want to help them out what you so cooling them down too fast is not the issue. The problem that we can run into is that usually the way we cool them down is like we hose them down with water and not ice water. You don't want to use ice in any of these because ice will cause local vasoconstriction and that will actually s- slow the process of cooling off because you want them to stay vasodilated. You want to bring the heat to the surface so it can be released back into the atmosphere. Um, but ice will cause local vasoconstriction. And that's not what you want. So we want to maintain that vasodilation so that we can have more, more heat loss. So we use just like whatever temperature comes out of the tap is probably going to be fine. Cool them off that way. Um, some people will use fans to try to inf- enhance evaporative losses. Um, if they need IV fluids and you're using room temperature fluids, those are also cold. Those are about, you know, 30 degrees colder than the patient. So that will help. Um, and fortunately, if they're in heat stroke, they probably also do need IV fluids. If, they, if they're if they just like heat stress or heat exhaustion and they don't need IV fluids, then I wouldn't give IV fluids just to cool them off. The other um, techniques can be fine. But what will happen sometimes is they start out and you're just aggressively trying to cool them. And then it seems like it takes a while to get things started. And then they start to cool down. And then you're like, okay, we're good. And then they keep cooling down because they're still wet and they're still like, so they, then they, they, we overshoot the mark and now they become hypothermic, which is not what you want. So usually what, um, what I recommend and what most people recommend is that, you know, they come in, a dog 
you know, comes in with a temperature of 108 and 109, 110, something really, really high and you cool them off. But when they start to get into the like 103 to 104 range, stop actively cooling them because they are going to continue to cool because they're wet and that sort of thing. So we don't, because if you're not paying attention, next thing you know, you're like, oh, they're 94 degrees. That's not what we meant to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not good either. Um, How do you tell the difference on a dog that just comes in and has a high temperature between it being like a fever and it being like a that's heat exhaustion? That's a very thing? good question. So, Because you always say with the fever, don't cool them down. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so with a fever, um, one, history is going to be important, right? Um they were out running around in the middle of the day and um, and then they sort of stopped or they collapsed or something like that. And, and then we check their temperature and it's high. That sounds like heat stroke. The other thing is that dog is probably um, either has been panting a lot um, or most likely still is panting because it's trying to cool off. And dogs broadcast when they feel hot and are trying to cool off. A dog with a fever has an elevated temperature but is not panting because he doesn't feel hot. So even though his temperature is high, his brain wants it to actually yeah, be even higher. Yeah, fever, you feel cold. You feel cold, yeah, because your hypothalamic set point has been increased. So the feeling of hot or cold... That was a fancy word. Which one? Hypothalamic set, set point. point. So your hypothalamus is the portion of your brain where your thermostat lives, and, um, and your thermostat gets set based on your species where it should be. So if you're healthy and you're a person, you should be at or around 98.6. If you're a dog, you should be at around 100 degrees. Same with a cat. But if you have a fever, you have inflammatory cytokines that have come through and turned your thermostat up. So now um, what normally, your normal thermostat is if you're a dog is set at 100 degrees, but your um, inflammatory response has now increased your thermostat to say 103 degrees. So if your thermostat is set at 103 degrees and your temperature is 101 degrees, you feel cold. Normally you wouldn't feel cold at 100 degrees, but now you have a fever. So you're going to be shivering and feeling really cold and trying to heat up because your body wants your temperature to get up because it's decided that that's advantageous to make the environment, your body, inhospitable to whatever organism it thinks might be invading. So that that's going to be like the evolutionary response to an infection is to change the environment to make it harder for bacteria or viruses to replicate and so that your immune system can take over. So that's like the why you would develop a fever. So until your temperature gets up to that 103 new set point, you're going to feel cold. And then when you have a fever and then it breaks in the middle of the night, you get you feel hot all of a sudden, you're sweating. It's because your thermostat suddenly got turned back down. So now your thermostat's back down to 100, but your temperature doesn't drop that quickly. And so you're like, but now 103 feels, it was it was cold two minutes ago, and now I feel hot again. So when fevers kind of wax and wane, it can throw you off a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but in heat stroke, you still feel hot <laughs> the whole time. That doesn't go away. And so a dog should be panting its brains out. Um, not literally, but figuratively. And so it's panting, panting, panting. So the dog comes in with a temperature of 108 and it's panting. Um, that That's a heat stroke. The dog comes in with a temperature of 106 and it's not panting. That sounds like a fever. Um, now, if the dog is in a coma because its heat stroke got so bad, again, that's where the history really comes into play. Mm-hmm. Um, like it was panting before and then it like, you know, collapsed and now it's having a seizure because it overheated and things like that. That that can confuse things, but usually there will be some history that makes it pretty obvious. Um, so it, it's not often that we really confuse a heat stroke with a fever. Now people will get freaked out about high fevers. 106 would freak a lot of people out and they would recommend actively cooling and I'm not in that category. Um, I'm like, nope, the, the hypothalamic set point is different. Now the other thing that is interesting with heat stroke is that um, 
we can adapt to pretty high temperatures. So for example, if you take the temperature of a greyhound after it's completed a, a race, so racing greyhounds, all that exertion, like serious, like sprinting, crazy exertion, their temperatures are routinely 104, 105, 106, up to 107, and they're fine. They're panting, they're trying to cool off, but they don't have heat stroke, but they've been training for that. Yeah. And so your body has, um, and you, the cells of your body have what are called heat shock proteins, and you can upregulate the the expression of heat shock proteins if you train and you prepare and I think that's one of the reasons that I got some heat exhaustion is that we did all of our training in Virginia, where it is not very hot ever. <laughs> and we didn't do any of our training in Arizona or Utah, which is where the Grand Canyon, which spans yeah, both most of, those of your like big athletic stuff you did was in Michigan. Yeah, Michigan. I mean, I did a fair bit in Florida. Um, we did, you know, not like to that exertion level, but like we'd been training. Yeah, but like growing up and getting your body set. I mean, I did a lot when I was a kid and that was in California and that was hot, very similar to what we were there. Although, yeah, I mean, it was, but that was 25, 30 years ago. So, um, you de-adapt as well. Like that, Mm -hmm. it's not like a permanent thing. Like, Oh, when I was 12, I did this stuff. And now my, my cells are like, we know how to handle this. They forget after a while they go, Oh, this isn't a thing we need anymore. We'll downregulate these heat shock proteins. So, um, so there are, there is some circumstance and some individual variation depending on the training. And this is why in like dogs, heat stroke is far more common at the beginning of summertime than it is at the end of summertime. So people are like, oh, it's finally summer and we can get out and exercise. And they bring their dog and they and their dog have both been like couch potatoes all winter. And then they're like, let's go for a 10 mile run. And that's a terrible idea Um, because you haven't reconditioned for this weather. So you need to slowly reintroduce those types of activities. Um, And then there's some other things that can affect or increase the likelihood of a dog getting heat stroke. And that is if its ability to cool themselves off is impaired for some reason. Um, And some of the common reasons why that would be impaired in dogs would be one, the type of dog it is. So just conformation, particularly brachycephalic dogs, so smush face dogs. They um, they have the same amount of tissue that a dog with a long nose has, but it's just squished into a smaller space. And so all that tissue kind of backs up in the back of their throat and they're not as good at panting. There's just too much tissue back there. Um, so they don't pant very effectively because there's just too much. And so the the airways become a little bit narrowed. And so they're not going to pant very well. And then when they're struggling to pant, then those tissues can start to swell up and then it narrows things even more. And then that's it becomes a vicious bulldogs cycle. That's why have adapted to use skateboards instead of running. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, is And again, even bulldogs can adapt to the weather. And so they're not all, but those smush face breeds like bulldogs and Frenchies and Bostons and things like that, pugs are going to be uh, more susceptible to getting heat stroke than maybe other breeds. Now, if it's a really active bulldog who exercises regularly, he should be in pretty good shape versus, you know, another breed that has a long nose and doesn't exercise still can get laryngeal or uh, still can get heat stroke. And I was about to say the next thing, um, this, this will throw things off is um, dogs that get laryngeal paralysis. And we've talked about this in the show before, but laryngeal paralysis is when the, um, the cartilages that close when you're supposed to swallow and open when you're supposed to breathe um, become weakened um, and sometimes they become completely paralyzed. They just don't work anymore. And that impairs um, dogs' ability to pant. Did you say that was common in Labradors? Yeah, so Which older Labradors. Like, like the 
like the dog a lot of people would go running with. Exactly. And so, so say this is like the perfect storm. So, okay, we've been like, you know, lounging around all winter. Meanwhile, your dog's larpar has been slowly creeping up on you, but you've been not been super active because it's been winter. It's been cold. You don't do anything. It's lame. Um, and then it's like, woohoo, we finally had some good weather. It's early spring or, you know, late spring, early summer, and we're finally getting out. And then we have our do- dog who for the last six months, it's laryngeal paralysis has been slowly progressing, but we haven't been that active. So no one noticed. Now it's warmer outside but maybe even not that warm maybe you were paying attention you're like oh I don't want to go out when it's really hot so we go out early in the morning and my Labrador still gets into trouble because he just can't pant very well he can't cool himself off that would be like if all of a sudden you weren't able to sweat Um, you would overheat a lot faster and so that is um, another thing that can kind of surprise people where they you know like last year we did this and it wasn't a big deal but He's not the same dog he was last year. So those are some scenarios where um, dogs can get into trouble, Mm -hmm. where doing activity that seemed like it was okay. The other thing that allows dogs to get into trouble is that they're kind of dumb. And they're like, but I was having so much fun. (laughs) And so they're not always good about recognizing that they're overheating. And they're like, maybe I should stop and take a break. It's like, but he threw the ball again. So I had to go get the ball again. Um, And so owners need to be kind of aware of that. And, And, but again, having probably experienced it like it's not obvious (laughs) like it's so I have a little bit more empathy um for the dogs to get heat stroke like why didn't they just stop running like I kind of get it now um so I've always heard a thing um I don't know if it's true or not they talk about uh the difference between horses and I think donkeys but it might be mules okay is uh like if you're working with a horse the horse will work itself to death like it'll work it'll get overheated and things Whereas like a a donkey or maybe a mule. Stubborn as a mule will just stop working. We'll just stop like when it's done. That's a good question. I have no idea. I mean, I've heard the phrase stubborn as a mule. I think it's the 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 donkey is thing. Because isn't the mule like the. It's the offspring. Yeah. The donkey and a horse. Yeah. But um, that's that's a good, it's a good question. I will have to look it up later because I'm not, it sounds great. I love that. I love the idea. And there's always in stories where it's like the the guy runs the horse to death and switches to another horse. Yeah. I've only ever heard that in a. I mean, I think a lot of animals, if you train them, like you could probably convince them to do that, but maybe not. Maybe mules are better about being like, nope, I'm done. I think it's just mules are more stubborn, but I don't know. We'll have to look into that and see if there's any truth to it. That's kind of cool. I don't think I'd Maybe that's like a cat thing too. A cat's like, no, I'm just going to lay here now. I'm too hot. Can you imagine like one of our cats just like running itself to exhaustion and then continuing? It would just be like, you're an idiot. I'm not chasing that I see our kitten doing that. Mm. If there's more food. Yeah, but there's food over there. But the food, he would slow down and stop when he was eating the food. He but if he had to like keep going for each oh, piece. Oh, like, like hang it in front of him and he had to keep running. Oh, know. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder what would happen if we did do Let's that. Let's not Just try. hang like a piece of food in front of me. Had to I'm go pretty sure they it. would take my license away if we did something like that. <laughs> um, okay, so that's a lot of background into like what causes heat stroke. Um, probably people want to know about like what to do about it. So cool them off. And you're done. Yeah. That is actually the entirety of the treatment for heat stroke. But, bum, bum, bum. Now what you have to do is deal with the consequences of what has happened. So the treatment for heat stroke is to cool them off and normalize their temperature. And now now the treatment for heat stroke is done. Now you have to treat everything that happened. (laughs) Um, And so what do you think happens to a dog that gets heat stroke? Um, It's organs boil. That's pretty darn close. Um, I mean, if they got to the boiling point, that would happen. But they did get, I like to describe it as they got cooked. 
And it's kind of gross, but if you think about what happens when you cook meat, right? Like what happens? What happens to the meat? What's it look like? It turns brown. It changes color. It also changes shape, right? Like it'll- Yeah, it shrinks. Yeah, it'll shrink up. It changes shape because- That's why when you buy an eight ounce steak, it's not actually eight ounces. Yeah, right? So do you know why it changes color and it shrinks? Because the water evaporates. That's not the major part. Because the you are fat deteriorates and melts. Some of that can happen, but mo- why does the meat change color? Like the meat the part, blood goes away. Is you're denaturing the proteins. <laughs> so cooking never would have guessed that. Oh, okay. So when, when you're, you're cooking, cooking you denature the proteins. So you're cooking and you're changing the the structure of the molecules. You're starting the digestion process. Essentially, we cook food to make it oh, yeah, easier to digest. Right. So even vegetables and things like that, you're cooking it to damage those tissues. Um, you're starting the digestion process. And but when you look at those like when you see meat cooking it changes color and it changes shape because you are destroying the proteins that you're starting that digestion process and you are denaturing them and that happens to your tissues when they get overheated you start to destroy the tissues and they cells die and proteins become denatured and um and it can affect organ function so Everything and essentially almost every tissue in your body is susceptible to this heat, um, this heat injury. Some exceptions would be like your bones, your teeth, um, your skin is, I mean, you can get sunburn, but like it's not going to, it's pretty susceptible or it's pretty resistant to, you know, specific damage, Um, you know, nails and fur are not like actively alive anymore. So those are going to be okay. <clears throat> but pretty much everything else. Uh, your lungs are sort of like reasonably well protected from direct heat injury. Um, but everything else is going to get really angry. Um, so tissues that are particularly susceptible, uh, all of them. Okay. So, <laughs> so the some of them, they're all susceptible to it. And then some of them recover better than others. So your intestinal tract gets really unhappy. Um, and it's extra susceptible because it's also filled with a bacterial soup. So when the tissues start to become damaged, the natural barriers to all the bacteria that are in your intestines are breaking down. So there's that's worrisome. Um, and you start to, you know, get, you lose the lining of your intestinal tract. The good news is that is used to turning over quickly. So it, you can recover pretty quickly from that. But in the meantime, it's real bad. So they get horrible GI signs. Um, your liver, your liver gets cooked. And so you'll get elevation in liver enzymes and things like that. Good news is liver is pretty good at regenerating. So you'll recover probably pretty good from that. But the liver took a hit. Kidneys, kidneys don't do well when you cook them. Um, and so acute kidney injury is really common. And kidneys are not always quite as recoverable as the liver. Usually animals can recover from this and they, they, they can. It just depends on the, the severity and the degree of the acute kidney injury. But kidney injury is very common in heat stroke. Um, the bone marrow. So bones are okay, but the marrow, not so much. So um, the marrow, and so it's very common to get thrombocytopenia, um, so low platelet count. You can also get a leukopenia, low white blood cell count. Fortunately, red blood cells have a long shelf life, um, even in the body. And so you don't usually see anemia because it about 30 days before you, you have to recycle those. So you, if you, and if you do it, it's probably pretty mild. Um, but platelets are very temperature sensitive. So the platelets die off pretty, pretty um, rapidly. 
Um, so the bone marrow can be affected. Um, the brain, um, so neurologic impairment is, again, that's one of the defining features of heat stroke. Um, so they can have neurologic deficits. It could be as relatively minor as just kind of dull mentation, as severe as seizures um, and potentially death. The heart also is susceptible to heat injury. And so it's really common for um, dogs with heat stroke to have um, arrhythmias, heart um, abnormal heart rhythms. Um, usually ventricular arrhythmias, but um, so yeah, you get irritation of the muscles in the heart, the muscle cells in the heart, and they can start firing erratically. Um, what tissues haven't I listed yet? Um, so the urinary tract is usually okay. The spleen's usually okay, as best we know. The lymphatics is okay. The lungs are okay, unless all the vomiting that they get from the GI upset leads them to have like aspiration pneumonia or something. That would be bad. Um, muscles die off. Um, you get definitely cooking of the muscle tissue. And so, uh, it's really common to have an elevated CK or creatinine kinase. Um, and then that could potentially worsen kidney injury because all the, the breakdown of those muscle tissues builds up in the blood and the kidneys have to excrete that and then they can get upset. So, um, yeah, it can be pretty bad. Also all the proteins, um, that are already in your blood, particularly your clotting factors, those can become denatured and then you can develop uh, a clotting disorder because so you can't form clots because you've damaged all the proteins that are supposed to make the clots. And then you also don't have platelets because they gave up because it got too hot. So yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. When you cook all the tissues, they all start to stop working. Yes. And so like the neurologic signs are just, you just the easiest to see. Uh, yeah, well that and the GI signs, like horrible, nasty, grody diarrhea and vomiting or regurgitation. And like they're sloughing like the inner layer of their intestine sometimes, like it'll come out in strips and it's really awful and dramatic. So. But would that happen right away, right when they. Not like in these? the first few minutes, but in the first few hours. Yeah, yeah. It happens quick. It happens real quick. It's real bad. Um, so it's, it's pretty rough. So again, the treatment is cool them off. Okay, you've done that. Well, now you have to deal with the fact that the intestines are sloughing and that's real bad. And the bone marrow has like, you know, been cooked. And so now you're missing all like the major important cells in your body. Um, your coagulation proteins are maybe not working well. So they have increased risk of bleeding potentially, especially when you're trying to help them by like putting catheters in and things like that. Um, their heart is having abnormal rhythm. So you might not have to treat arrhythmias and try to calm that down. Um, <clears throat> the kidneys, okay, the kidneys are going to be upset. So we need to try to find the right balance for fluids. So you need to treat all these things or are there things that you we can just like wait out and make sure that they're There's not a specific from. treatment for them because the only treatment is to stop cooking them. Mm -hmm. And you've done that, right? You've cooled them off. But now you have to deal with the consequences. So because their intestines are broken and they're having horrible vomiting and diarrhea, they're losing a lot of fluid. So you're probably going to have to give them fluid so that they're, um, you treat the dehydration or any hypovolemia and then keep up with their losses. Um, the kidneys took a hit. And so they might have uh, an obligatory polyuria. <clears throat> and so they might have excessive losses from that. And you're going to have to keep up with that. It's so when do you test to see if they have these things? Do you wait a little bit no. afterwards or you just I'm gonna test, test right them. away and I'm gonna just go test. off what the numbers are right away? I'm going to start there. I'm definitely going to test right away and see where things are and be like, okay, their kidneys are okay. And then probably in the next day or so, I'm going to have to check it again. Like if they're clinically looking worse, I'm probably going to check it again within the next, within 24 hours. If they're clinically stabilizing, I might wait a couple of days to, to recheck those things. So it's going to be a little bit of a judgment call, but no, I'm going to check all those things immediately. And I expect liver mm -hmm. values the to be numbers elevated. that they are right at the point of thing, you would trust those numbers. It's not like, oh, that'll fix itself in 
three hours. No, not in three hours. No, it's like, this is the injury we have. The injury might be worse. So Mm -hmm. I might have to monitor that over the next day, but it's not like, Oh, that's a pretend like, no, that's real. That's Mm -hmm. happened. Um, so unless they had some sort of pre-existing injury that could explain some of that, I'm going to be like, Nope, that's the injury that this animal has sustained. So that gives me a sense right now for how bad it is. Again, it could still get worse. That might not be the full extent of it, Mm -hmm. um, but it's going to give me a pretty good idea of where things are. Um, what, What if you had like a, like a diabetic animal or something. Mm-hmm. I can't try to think of like a chronic disease. Diabetes is a chronic disease. Um, so they might that. have some liver enzyme changes that would be like, oh, well, their ALP is really high. I'm like, that could be from the diabetes, but the ALT being really high, that's from the heat stroke. So like I could probably tease out what I think is more likely caused by this previous mm-hmm. illness and what I think is most likely. Not always. Some of the things it's going to be unclear, but it's like, well, they just, you know, I have yeah, So a, you wouldn't really worry about chronic diseases too much. I mean, that's not a good thing because now this one more thing they have to contend with. Um, so the healthier they I mean, are based on like the, the numbers and stuff not that you see. No. It's not a big deal. No, not like if they had pre-existing kidney disease, like, okay, you didn't have that much kidney left to mess with and we may have lost too much. Like, so that could affect prognosis, but it's not really going to change my treatment. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just going to keep treating whatever chronic disease there was, adjust kind of as needed for the new scenario. But mostly it's like, no, I just need to support their organs through this time. And they can heal. Like most of those tissues can heal up unless it kind of hits that point of no return where too much of that organ has been lost. Um, but generally speaking, the prognosis for heat stroke is quite good if you can support their organ systems through the recovery phase. Because again, the recovery phase really starts once you've cooled them off. Once you stop cooking How them. How long is the recovery phase typically? Um, Usually a couple days for like the the bad part. Like the the worst part is going to be a couple of days. For some animals, that's going to be more protracted. It's going to take longer. Um, The full, full, full recovery is probably weeks, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because you've, so like a couple deafened. days in the hospital and then I would say uh, average for a bad a bad heat stroke is probably going to be three to five days in the hospital, sometimes mm-hmm. longer. And like a like a caught it pretty early could be like two to three days in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, one thing I want to mention, because treatment is going to be, again, supportive care, fluid therapy, anti not like make them feel better if they're painful, treat them for pain meds. Um, you know, if they do aspirate, you got to treat the pneumonia, um, you know. If they have horrible GI sloughing, we'll probably put them on antibiotics to um, prophylactically to try to prevent translocation because now you've broken one of the barriers where all the in, the bacteria live and the barrier to keep the bacteria on the outside from is, is now compromised. So probably some antibiotics like while their gut is still unhappy. So a few days of antibiotics. Once they start to heal up, you don't need to continue the antibiotics. They don't have an infection. You're just trying to kind of protect them against opportunistic mm-hmm. bugs. Is this the thing you don't worry about killing the bacteria in their GI because that's I mean, the problem? I do. It is pro- like I don't like having to give antibiotics in, in the situation, but if they die of sepsis, that doesn't do them any good. Like yeah. we can deal with the, the, the GI complications later if we have to. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a weighing out the pros and cons. And in this case, preventing bacterial sepsis is probably more important than preventing like the, the dysbiosis that you get from giving antibiotics. Um, but one of the common things that people will recommend is to give, um, plasma, fresh frozen plasma in heat stroke cases. And I would say we don't have good studies on this, but I would say in my experience, that's usually not necessary. Um, the reason people give that, the reason people give plasma is because if they do clotting times, a 
a PT and PTT. Remember how I said the, the clotting mm-hmm. proteins will probably be um, destroyed and the platelets are going to be low. Is there like, ah, the clotting times are prolonged. I have to give plasma to correct that. And if you give plasma, you will correct that. But if they're not bleeding anywhere, the plasma is probably not necessary. Right. Because they're just going to reproduce their own. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Their yeah. liver will start to make some more and, and they'll be okay. So if they're bleeding, yes, give them plasma. But if their numbers are just prolonged, like just don't, like kick them, like don't, you know, don't push them around, don't cause trauma to them. Um, you know, try to minimize that as much as you can. Um, cause their platelets are going to be low and the plasma is not going to do anything for their platelets. And if you just kind of hang tight, they might be okay. Now, the other reason people might want to give it is cause their, their albumin probably gets low and it's like, yep, it's going to be low and you're not going to be able to raise it very much with the plasma you give. So I'm, I'm very kind of meh on giving plasma. I'm not saying it's never indicated, but I think a lot of people just automatically give it in every case of heat stroke. And I don't think that's appropriate either. Um, so just, I would, I would recommend people be a little bit more like think about what does this particular patient need right now and why? And am I just treating the numbers or is there something specific that I think this patient needs this treatment for? Um, so it's mostly going to be, you know, fluid therapy to treat dehydration slash hypovolemia, maintenance fluids to keep up with their ongoing losses, potentially a more than maintenance if they're having like severe GI losses. I do think we should avoid fluid overload always. Um, pain management, because I think they're going to be pretty achy for a while. Um, anti-nausea because they're How can you tell when you've given enough fluids? Ugh, that's a whole nother podcast over. (laughs) That's not a can of worms we're going to get into right now. Not if we want to make this like not a three-hour show. Um, so the short answer is it's hard. Um, so you're going to have to use, you know, context clues. Like what's the heart rate doing? What's their, um, you know, hydration status look like, you know, skin tent, that sort of thing. Um, and then trying to like at least a little bit quantify how much you think they're losing. Um, but it's hard. Uh, so I'm not here to tell you like, it's really easy. Like literally that would be hours and hours of conversation and we still won't have it totally figured out. Um, but do your best. You know, what my, what I would say is think about it. (laughs) Don't just pick a number and like give them a ton and just reassess them all the time. Just constantly recheck, recheck, recheck. Um, but pain management, anti-nausea management, I think probably not immediately in the first day or so, but like after a couple of days, their GI tract, they're probably still going to be feeling sort of crummy. Um, but they are going to need some nutrition. And so if they're not going to start eating within a couple of days, putting in a feeding tube to get them some nutrition, that will help the gut heal faster. Um, so I think that's going to be something common that they would need. Um, and that's, I mean, there's really not much magic to it. It's really just supporting them through it. Their body does all the work of healing once you stop cooking them. And you just have to make sure that the consequences from the cooking um, are not so severe that they die. So it sounds like, like fluids, nutrition, and then comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, like, you don't need to give some sort of medication for the kidney. Nope. There isn't one. For the liver. There isn't one. Queen. Um, there might be medications for the heart. If they have an arrhythmia, like if they're having a ventricular, arrhythmia, ventricular tachycardia, you might need to give lidocaine. Um, but that would be a short-term thing. You wouldn't expect they need anything long-term. I mean, maybe for a couple of weeks, you can put them on like some sodalol or something. So there might be a specific treatment if they're having an arrhythmia. Does that make you happier? Maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that that's it. That's How really often do you, you said you see them mostly times. like in the 
like yeah. late spring, early summer. Yeah. I mean, we'll see them all throughout the summertime. Um, we can see it even in the winter, like I said, from some of those weird situations, like a dog that's been seizuring for the past two hours solidly and it's just getting making all that muscle activity and then it's generating heat that way. Um, or again, if it's a smushed face breed or a, or a dog with laryngeal paralysis, it can happen at any time. But most of the time, this is a summertime thing. This is happening mm-hmm. in the summer. And you see a lot or? Um, I think like how many times a week during the summer, it probably depends a little bit on where you are. Um, we don't, I feel like we see it a lot less than we used to because I think most people have been educated about it. Um, and they avoid it and then they recognize the signs like, Oh my dog, like, and they try to calm them down and they cool their dogs off. Um, they do pretty good. So I would say we don't see it as commonly as we used to, but in the summertime, you might see it once or twice a month at an emergency clinic. Mm -hmm. It depends how busy you are. You know, you might see three in a week. Um, okay. The worst I ever had to deal with. This was during my residency. And so at least an hour or two from us, there was a community that was having like a fun run. It was like, hey, yay, this is really fun. We have, um, it was the beginning of summertime, I think. I don't remember exactly the time of year. And they were having like a community 5K, bring your dog with you. And so people were coming out and doing this 5K run walk and um, they didn't, and they started at like 10 in the morning. So by the time people were doing it, it was middle of the day and they did not have enough water or water stations and dogs were dropping like flies. Like there were, I think. Yeah, I think of people a, forget about that, like how good humans are yeah. at going a long distance. Yeah, yeah. And Much these were dogs. And this animals. was like a community thing. And these were not necessarily dogs that had been training for this. And um, yeah, so I think there were, you know, scores, if not maybe like a hundred or more dogs that ended up having heat stroke. And they basically, the area hospitals like took everything they could and they were like, we, we can't take anymore. So people were um, transporting dogs like an hour or more to our facility. And we probably got five or six. Um, and so we only had a handful of those dogs all at one time, but there were a lot of dogs. Many dogs died. Um, that was, it was really sad. We, um, I can't remember. We saved a few of them for sure. I can't remember if we saved all of the ones that came to us. Um, but there was, that was, that was real bad. Um, so yeah, it was a poorly organized event. Really. It was really sad. I mean, obviously nobody did it on purpose. Um, but it just it was like, ooh, who did you consult with on these plans about what time this should have started and how to be prepared for it and what kind of, you know. I wonder if that's a thing that, so usually like runs and stuff are organized. They're not organized, but they're, <laughs> you have to get a permit from the police and they yeah. set a route for you. Yeah. I wonder if that's a part of the, I don't know. like permanent, hey, are you having animals at this thing? Or do you, do have, you have enough have water, water for the people and the you animals? notifying everybody that if yeah. you yeah, because it was you on have a, a house weekend. dog. Don't bring it. Well, and it was also on a weekend, so a lot of practices weren't open, right? Uh, yeah, it was really sad. But anyway, that was definitely the worst heat stroke scenario I've seen. I mean, I've seen many, many dogs, and the, the fun thing is, they can do really well. They're usually not cheap. Um, you know, being in the hospital for you know three, four, five days can certainly get expensive, and they do need a fair bit of intensive care and monitoring. But but the outcomes can be really good. Um, so. They are, I think, kind of fun cases to treat because they can do really well and there's a lot of fun pathophysiology to go through. Um, But really, it's just about just supporting them through. They're going to fix themselves if you just buy them the time. You just got to buy them time with supportive care. So yeah, don't cook your dog Mm -hmm. or your wife. Topher. Making me go on this this ridiculous trip. The best part is right when, uh, probably about, 20 minutes after she was exhausted mm-hmm. 
she turns and she asks her guy, it's like, how much longer do we have? Realistically. Be, be honest with me. Yeah. And he's like, mm, two hours. Whew, okay. Like, how much of that is uphill? No, I think what I said to him, I was like, okay, but that's not entirely up, up. Like we're not going up the mountain the whole time. And he's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. And I was like, oh, okay. I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was a good thing that I asked or not, but I asked. Yeah, at least you knew. Well, I think for me, I was like, okay, because I'm not going to like, okay, just push through. You got a little bit longer. It's like, nope, you have a lot longer. Yeah. So on the worst part of the Grand Canyon is you look up and you're like, okay, that's, that's where I'm going. Top. And then you get there and then there's another one. It's like, <laughs> yeah. what? I thought we were at the top. That happened like hundreds of times. We're at this top. <laughs> it didn't do that with the bottom. Like when you were going down, you yeah, could always... Did. Oh, you always, you thought you're like, there's the bottom? Yeah. I well, thought at I first where I was like, true. oh, we're at the bottom. And then we walked. We like, were at the first bottom. And then and you then had to walk flat bottom. for a while. That's and then true. there was another bottom. I guess that's true. And then there was another so bottom. it's so big. It's so much bigger than you understand. Yeah. And eventually there was the Colorado River. But that was the actual bottom. Yeah. But there were a couple of other rivers. I was like, oh, there's the Colorado River. Because no. I have no idea of river like, sizes. No, I'm <laughs> from Florida. There are no rivers. <laughs> there's, there's like creeks and the ocean. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You could tell the Colorado River because it was dirty. Yeah. It had rained like three or four days before they got there. And so all the silt had kind of like churned up. And so it was like chocolate milk looking. Mm-hmm. But all the other like streams and things were crystal clear and gorgeous. Yeah. A couple streams like, oh, there's the Colorado River. Cool. No, they were like, no, nope. No, the Colorado was much bigger and the rapids were much faster. And yeah, that was kind of crazy. But yeah. So that's heat stroke. Yeah. Don't get it. Too hot. Too long. Yeah. So hopefully that um, answer, you know, the folks that had requested this as a topic, hopefully we covered the things that you were hoping we would cover, plus some extra stories about how I almost died of heat stroke. Okay, that's not what happened at all. But um, anyway, hope you enjoyed the chat and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.